Welcome everyone to our new CSEN podcast, which is being recorded on the 15th of February 2018. My name is Ole and I'm uh, once again joined by my colleague Mark in what is meant to be a series of topical podcasts. Last time we spoke, we talked about um, Bitcoin price dynamics and what those dynamics are telling us about the underlying market. Since then, the price of Bitcoin has fallen substantially, part of which has to do with either increased calls for regulation or actual regulatory measures in some jurisdictions. And as of this morning, when we last checked, the price of Bitcoin on one of the more prominent exchanges was about $9,400. We touched a little bit um, upon regulation in our earlier podcast, but I'm happy that we are returning to this topic again today. So today's podcast is called Cryptocurrency and ICOs to regulate or not to regulate. Before we start, just uh, I'd like to remind you that you can send us questions, comments and queries uh, by email at podcast at CSEN.org, or you can tweet us at, at CSEN Center. Before we start, let me just also remind you of a quote by John Kenneth Galbraith, the great economic historian, who said that the world of finance hails the invention of the wheel again and again, often in a slightly more unstable version. And I'd like to use this as a starting point for our discussion in terms of cryptocurrency and ICOs to regulate or not not to regulate. But enough um, from me for the time being. Let me kick off my conversation with Mark by going back to basics. So fundamentally, Let me first ask Mark, what are the foundations for regulation? So in terms of regulation 101, why do we have regulation in the first place? Uh, Thank you very much, Ole. And I guess I should add that uh, the views that I'm about to express are the views, my views, and not necessarily the views of the management of CSEN or any of our members. Uh, I'd like to address this specific question, Ole, from the perspective of two points of interest, and I'll try to explain why. One is around financial literacy and public education and awareness, and around market abuse as well as trust and confidence. Uh, I think trust and confidence is critical as to why we regulate. But before I get deeper into that, allow me to step back to the, the U.S. Banking Committee uh, discussion last week where Christopher uh, Carlo said that we should think about regulation primarily because we have a younger generation that is so enthused by technology. I too had a similar experience with my children. Marissa, for example, asked me last week, what is Bitcoin? And then I asked her, why are you asking about Bitcoin? And she said, another student in her grade four class was talking about Bitcoin where he was playing games and he won 
five coins. I thought that that was amazing because, Elena, that you and I have that kind of return despite our years of experience in our careers, but that's an amazing career in terms of efforts and reward. So I share this to say is that there is, from a regulator perspective, uh, certain there is need for greater public awareness, uh, greater education. But on the issue of trust and confidence, what I would love to do in speaking about regulation is to step back, is to step back to the global financial crisis. Uh, the, the, the subject of regulation is an important one, certainly since around 1971, when George Stigler certainly put forward his paper on economic regulation. So it's, it's a discipline on its own. But let's look at some, some issues around regulation from the global financial crisis. Uh, we know that there were, in some respect, uh, failures around regulation. We know that the private sector, the banking sectors, uh, uh, they underestimated risk. We know that the household consumers, we know from, from, that, from the banking crisis that consumers took on more debt than they had the capacity to. So there is enough blame, and you talk about this a lot in your financial crisis, because there's enough blame to go. But does that mean that we do not need regulation? Or when we speak about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, uh, why, or should we ask the question, why should we be more confident in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency than we are in governments, regulators, uh, banks, and even ourselves as consumers? So I share this to say that uh, the more things change the more they remain the same and uh, another bit that I will add is George Orwell's animal farm where we look from man to pig and from pig to man and we could not determine which was which to say that why should we be any more confident in the cryptocurrency industry than we are in regulation and in banking and this is not to say that we are oblivion to the benefit of cryptocurrency. So then, what is regulation? Regulation is required where a sector or a market is unable to discipline itself. All right, so that's, that's, that's fundamental. It is, it is fundamental to having trust in the system. It is fundamental to having confidence in the system. So from that perspective, we need to talk about regulation. So if you can just in a nutshell give us some indication of why regulation is important. C certainly. A, in instances where funds are being taken from the public, as we have seen, for example, with ICOs, we know that in 2017, for example, about 3.5 to 3.7 billion dollars were actually raised through ICOs, but we also know that they have been enormous amount of scams and fraud as well. So from that perspective, to stop abuse, to minimize losses to the public, we have to consider regulations. Certainly, um, so ICOs or initial coin offerings uh, a hot topic, and it's one of the obviously one of the the one of it's included in the title of this podcast, and we will return to ICOs uh, in a minute. 
Now, if I were cynical about this, and of course one of the criticisms that always being leveled against regulation is that it hampers innovation. So, I mean, uh, cryptocurrencies and everything that goes with it is by the fans of the technology and the approach is being seen as sort of a new thing. It's a technological innovation. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's the reinvention of the wheel um, with all the associated benefits to society and the users and so on. So the criticism is that regulation, and this is true for cryptocurrencies as much as it is for, in the, in the, for the financial services industry, that regulation um, may hinder innovation. Is that a view you share, or can you tell us something about whether regulation is beneficial or detrimental to, to innovation? Okay, so, so regulation has, can have a positive and negative effect on, 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 on innovation. Uh, on the one hand, regulation can foster or result in innovation. And we saw this, for example, leading up to the great financial crisis. We saw situations where regulations were put in place and the banking sector, they design new products, they use technology to enhance how they responded to, regu to regulation. But we also know that regulation is a tax and it can, in fact, hinder, uh, hinder innovation. On the other side, innovation itself can also fuel regulatory reforms. Right? So it is not a clear-cut case as to whether or not regulation hinders or foster innovation. So how can regulation, how can regulation support innovation? One is a situation where banks are required to continue their research and their research and development and develop new products to be able to comply with the new regulation. From that perspective, regulation is, is good for innovation. From the perspective of innovation, innovation can lead to regulation. And we're seeing this in this space where we recognize, certainly from the AML perspective, that increased regulation over the last couple of years has led to innovation in terms of how banks comply with AML regulations. So regulation can have two effects on innovation. In terms of the regulation that we are discussing today, um, maybe we should ask ourselves the question of what the purpose of the cryptocurrency is, what needs they are fulfilling, and what real-world problems they are addressing. That might have an, uh, an, an effect on the uh, sort of, sc scope for, you know, of scope for regulation. Uh, certainly. Well, you know that the whole Bitcoin came about around 2009 after the paper was published by Santoshi, right? Um, the, the essence is that it is allowing for faster transaction, uh, but we also know that it comes with some kind of anonymity. anonymity. We also know that in terms of uh, uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, we know that they are locationless. 
and they are borderless. Uh, what real-world problem are they solving? Well, there's a thinking that in terms of speed and accessibility, it will be useful for how quickly we can do payment transaction. There's a thinking that it can address uh, uh, financial innovation, fi sorry, financial inclusion. So, this, so there's better. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, for example, the CPMI in the, at the Basel Committee, at the BIS, has been working assiduously with a number of countries about faster payments. So there are other uh, efforts taking place outside of the cryptocurrency industry to ensure faster payments. But with some of the features of uh, cryptocurrencies, such as the, 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 the lack of um, identity, is an issue of concern, is an issue of concern. And if we go back to our question as to why do we regulate? We regulate because we want to know who are the people who are involved in our financial systems. All right. So we have to ask ourselves, do we know who are the people behind this cryptocurrency? From an AML perspective, can we continue to allow the fact that we're unable to identify the ultimate holders of these coins because of the anonymity that is provided within the blockchain technology. Can we allow that to continue? Now you mentioned um, one, of, one of the issues uh, which is anonymity and um, the fact which happens or which exists on top of the borderless um, uh, nature of these, of these cryptocurrencies. Do you have any sort of examples of the effects of the anonymity and the borderless nature of, of cryptocurrencies on anti-money laundering, combating financing of terrorism and so on? Yes. Um, I came across a, a news report from uh, in Europe where Europol, uh, just this week, uh, it was reported in the, the, the news that Europol estimate that about a hundred billion dollars are actually laundered through Europe. And they're estimating that about three to four percent is being laundered through Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency. And Europol is actually worried that A, because these networks are borderless, because they're unable to identify the beneficial uh, owners, and, and I touch on the issue of beneficial owners, this is a big issue that the international community has invested a lot of resources to ensure within our formal banking system we're able to identify the beneficial, beneficial owners of uh, banking accounts and certain financial transactions. So Europol is concerned about this. Europol also highlighted the fact that millions of dollars are actually f being laundered through cryptocurrency, and once it gets in that space, it is being broken down, and we have what we call money mules who are being used to then convert these cryptocurrencies to fiat currency. So this is a concern, and we have to think about how do we develop regulation to address this issue. I mean, we we are on the same wavelength in the sense that, I mean, we've talked about this on numerous occasions, just in terms of the the users of bitcoins, I mean, they themselves seem to be forking into sort of two streams. One is the 
um, the sort of supporters of the technology um, and the other seems to be the money launderers uh, and and those who use Bitcoin for sort of more illicit trans transactions. Um, so maybe there is um, uh, maybe there is scope for regulation. So this brings me to my next question to you, which is whether cryptocurrencies and initial coin offerings or ICOs should be regulated. Uh, I am falling squarely on the side that this space need to be regulated. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not on the side where we should ban this because I, I don't think I understand enough of it to say we should ban it. Well, what I do know is that last year we saw phenomenal interest in Bitcoins and other cryptocurrencies. I mean, the price movements were just phenomenal. Right? So why should we regulate it? As a regulator, we are concerned about failures. We're concerned about crisis. And a question that I continuously ask myself is whether or not cryptocurrencies can lead to some kind of crisis in our financial system and in, in our economy. Frankly, I don't think they have reached that threshold where they can necessarily spill over into the banking sector to result in widespread fallout. But there is need for concern. Cryptocurrency are become, becoming more and more integrated in our formal financial system. So from that perspective, we should start thinking about a regulatory framework for cryptocurrencies and ICOs. Picking up on the ICO question, now again, the, the sort of uh, Bitcoin followers will have us believe that an ICO is nothing more than an initial public offering in terms of uh, shares and equity that we've seen for hundreds of years or uh, in, in terms of the, the regular financial sector. So the ICO is just the sort of the extension of that into the cryptocurrency world. I mean, that begs the question, um, and I mean, you've, you've worked in, in this area for a long time in terms of just basically providing access to capital for the economy. And it's not quite clear to me, and maybe you can shed some light on, on the issue, to what extent an ICO provides access to capital in a sort of productive sense to the rest of the economy as an IPO or even a bank loan or credit does in terms of the traditional banking system? I think this is, a, this is an interesting question around ICOs. I think uh, Ernest and Young did a study uh, or published uh, a report uh, late last year, early into this year, where they, identif where they noted that about 10% of what has been raised through ICOs have been lost through scams and, and fraud. Uh, so if we think that about 3.5 to 3.7 billion dollars were raised last year, we're looking at about 400 million dollars that have been lost through scams. Uh, uh, another uh, feature of the uh, point from the Ernest & Young report is uh, we have startup companies, and you know, which this is tied to the access to capital for SMEs, for startups, for innovators, that we have uh, startups that are issuing white papers 
and are issuing tokens based on these white uh, based on these white papers, where the white papers are poorly written uh, in terms of whether or not they really need to issue a token for whatever project they're doing. It's questionable. Uh, there are instances where, and I think this is something that the SEC and the uh, the CFTC in the U.S. have have actually highlighted, where they're just people who are just tagging these things on 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 their name. They're tagging black blockchain on their names. They're saying, "Oh, we're going to issue an ICO because we want to issue it." Uh, so. Access to finance is, 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 is an important thing for the small and medium enterprise sectors and for startups. And ICOs, maybe it is a, it is a, a useful response to addressing some of the issues around there. But certainly from what we have seen, if 10% is being lost through scams, through uh, Ponzi schemes and other fraudulent schemes, then we have to rethink if this is the solution to access to finance for SMEs. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of sort of earlier episodes with the internet bubble where, excuse me, as long as you put a 2.0 or a web to your name, um, there would be sort of added enthusiasm for the product, which I think is sort of happening in the, in the ICO world um, as well. Let me pick up on one thing that I think we should stress a lot more, and I mean, you've done it uh, already, in terms of the regulation. Now, you mentioned that the cryptocurrency world is borderless, and regulation by its nature is national. So how do we square that that circle between national regulation and the borderless crypto world? Uh, that, I think, is an important question. And I think what, we're, what we have seen certainly over the last two weeks uh, with uh, France and Germany, uh, they will be uh, putting forward a proposal at the G20 summit in Argentina in March. Uh, we are seeing where uh, Jurisdictions are recognizing that, yes, regulation is, there's some kind of sovereignty to, to regulation, but in this effort, because of the borderless nature of, of cryptocurrencies, there needs to be uh, some kind of international framework, international standards as to how uh, these new products will be regulated at a global level. And so there needs to be greater coordinations, uh, greater cooperation as to how regulation. It's, it's, it's quite interesting over the last two, two weeks how, uh, how many reg, uh, jurisdictions have actually called for an international focus on cryptocurrency. We heard that from the Koreans. Uh, we know that Germany and France are going to the G20. Uh, we have seen a pronouncement from multiple regulatory agencies within Europe. So I think we are at the point where we recognize that there needs to be a global focus as to how we address it. Could you just, um, for a better understanding, um, if uh, sort of outline a, a possible scenario. So say I am um, uh, 
interested in investing in Bitcoin or I have invested in Bitcoin, which means I need to have an electronic wallet with one of the, these Bitcoin exchanges. So say I'm located in country A and um, I have a wallet with, which con con contains a certain number of Bitcoin and then country A issues a regulation that bans Bitcoin trading. I think you've gone, you've done, you've gone through the mechanics how easy it is to evade a regulation in, in my home country in terms of the wallet. Um, can you just give us sort of a, a, an example of what would happen in that case? I, I have some. It's and again, the the interesting thing about this space is a lot of what certainly I have from from the work that I do is anecdotal. Uh, so we know, for example, that. Uh, uh, when China, for example, announced in 2017 that they were uh, banning cryptocurrency, we know that some transactions moved to, for example, Korea. So Korea became the, the hotbed for cryptocurrency. And Korea then announced that we're going to take measures to, to address cryptocurrency. So what we have from anecdotal evidence in terms of uh, since the Korean... Um, uh, pronouncement to strengthen the regulation, to put in place regulation around cryptocurrency. Well, we know that if you are and if you are in Korea, for example, you might be able to uh, access cryptocurrencies on exchanges, for example. And and, and and I don't have them. This is just anecdotal. In say Singapore, all right. And how would you? Do that. How would you circumvent the regulation in in in, in Korea? Uh, it's you could physically fly to 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 Singapore to to go and um, execute your transactions. But we also we have other technology, and this is this 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 is something I read from one of the newspapers in Korea. You could actually use a WhatsApp message to a friend or a relative in 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 um, in. In, in Singapore to acquire the, the coins for you. But if I, because I'm here in um, Malaysia, I'll share another anecdotal um, experience here in Malaysia regarding um, Luna, which is a, an exchange that is, uh, I think it's based in the UK, but they permit for um, wallets in, in, in Malaysia. And I think the tax authorities um, uh, in Malaysia uh, recently put a, a freeze on Luna's um, transactions with Luna's. And what was apparently happening when that freeze was in place is that uh, the Malaysian consumers weren't able to access their accounts or the funds in their accounts or their coins in their, in their, in their wallets. So what was apparently happening is that people were converting to on exchanges in, say, New Zealand. The question is, if you don't have an account, uh, a fiat account in New Zealand, is how then do you, when you ultimately need to convert to fiat currency, how do you get those funds back in Malaysia? Mm. All right, but but there are other issues around that. We're talking about um, capital inflows and capital outflows. These are issues that we are concerned about from a financial stability perspective, which is a public good. Um, you mentioned uh, a minute ago um, tax authorities. In terms of the cryptocurrency world. We don't even have a, a uni, uniform or <coughs> a good idea about how we should tax these 
these cryptocurrencies. Would that be a fair a fair assessment? It's it's a fair assessment. I think the IRS in the U.S. Uh, they are clear that uh, transactions around virtual currencies, cryptocurrencies, um, will be taxed. I think the Australian authorities, for example. I think they have, and I have to verify this, they have said um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies transactions will not be taxed. I think it's to that effect. Uh, so there's no uniform approach to taxation. But certainly, if as we're speaking of regulation, I think uh, clarity around taxation would be a useful starting point as we think about regulating cryptocurrency. Now, most of the commentators so far say that um, the amount of cryptocurrencies outstanding does not pose a potential problem to financial stability as such. But what we have seen, in, uh, particularly during the great financial crisis, is institutions or markets or even particular players within markets or service providers within markets being perceived as being too big to fail. Now, is that a problem we need to address? And what I'm thinking about here is that most of the large banks, at least, have said that they will not get involved in with cryptocurrencies. However, there were some reports recently that some smaller European banks are starting to dip their toes into the cryptocurrency market. Last time we spoke about the fact that cryptocurrencies were or used to be a closed system with no interaction with the traditional banking system, but some of these borders seem to be breaking down. I'm not thinking about um, sort of the cryptocurrency market being too big to fail, but um, do you foresee any potential issues with the, the two financial systems sort of meshing over time? Uh, I, this, I think despite, uh, again, uh, banks in the US and some banks in Europe announcing um, uh, recently that they won't allow transactions or they are banking customers to do transactions in cryptocurrency. Certain large banks in the US, they're, they're in that position. The Canadian banks haven't taken that stand. And I think in, um, in Thailand just recently, the central bank has actually asked banks not to do transactions in cryptocurrency. And a part of the effort in trying in, in, in not permitting banks to do transaction in cryptocurrency is certainly to ring fence the formal banking system from any spillover effect from the, 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 the cryptocurrency industry. But let us take the cryptocurrency industry by itself and let us take uh, one um, particular player, uh, Thetter, which I think the um, CFTC subpoenaed um, quite recently. Uh, they are a large player within the cryptocurrency space, and they're very uh, integrated in the cryptocurrency space because they are providing some kind of uh, reserve currency for the cryptocurrency space. So if we think about the cryptocurrency space and think about if from the subpoena, the, or, or let us say, and, and again, this is just hypothetical because we don't know. We don't know. So let's take Thitter as, as an example. Let's say that there is uh, 
substantial fallout with this particular player, which is closely tied to bin fix. All right. Let's let's say there's a there's a fallout. Then this could actually have a spillover effect to other cryptocurrency players. All right. So let us look at the linkages to the formal banking system. We know that um, the the CBO and we know that the commodities market exchange started futures contracts. So there is clearly some kind of linkages being made with the formal sector. We, you spoke about that small bank in Europe that is in, in looking to get involved in cryptocurrency. Uh, if, again, hypothetically, weak banks, weak financial institutions are the ones who are searching for yields, getting to this cryptocurrency space, and there is any fallout, then the mere fact that it's already a weak bank, it's, it's just going to compound the, that bank's problem. So yes, we have to worry about what kind of spillover effects can happen in the formal banking system because I think we're getting to the stage now, despite the ban by large banks not to permit transaction in cryptocurrency, we're seeing some kind of the formal banking sector getting involved as well. Um, if we touch the blockchain technology and research that is being done around the blockchain technology, uh, we have to ask ourselves about some of the institutions that are getting involved around the blockchain technology. Do they need to get involved in the blockchain? Is there a real need? Is there a genuine need? The reason I asked this question, well, before I, I follow up on that, um, we talked about... Uh, regulation or potential regulation in more generic terms. Do you have any specific examples of regulatory or sort of a stock take of regulatory actions that have been taken um, already? And is there a common thread or a common line? I, I don't think um, we, we are at that point where we're seeing some kind of um, harmonized regulation. I think the most of the effort is around the anti-money laundering, anti-terrorist financing bit. But if I could start with the the state of New York, they had their bit license from I think around 2014, 2015. Uh, the last thing I read is that uh, Korea may actually be thinking of a model similar to the the New York state um, uh, bit license. Which I think would be which would would be would be key. Um, I'm aware that uh, in in Korea there's a lot of development around whether or not banks no it's not whether or not is that banks should not allow for an anonymous accounts for transactions with 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 virtual and, and cryptocurrency. Uh, we are aware that uh, in Malaysia and I just came across this this, this morning that the Bank Negara and the authorities in Malaysia are taking the, they've, they're going to issue a concept paper and they're going to allow the public to determine uh, the status of cryptocurrency. So at this moment in Malaysia, they are not taking a decision, um, they haven't taken a decision whether or not to ban cryptocurrency. Uh, in the Philippines, um, they are looking at um, on better understanding cryptocurrency and initial coin offerings and to bring them within the securities and exchange um, regulation as well. Uh, I think the SEC 
and the Commodities and Future Trade Commission. I think they are very, very active. Uh, they have um, issued a lot around uh, fraud, a lot around misconduct, uh, a lot about um, uh, um, inappropriate uh, advertising, a lot about uh, insider abuse. Uh, so these are, and as I said in the beginning, these are issues that came out of the great financial crisis. But in this nascent space, these are issues that are emerging, and hence the need for regulation. Let me follow that up with, I don't know whether it's an unfair question, but uh, you know, as economists, we can, ask, we can ask questions, we can have sort of thought experiments. And it's something that sort of is puzzling me, which is an inherent paradox in, in the world of cryptocurrencies. And I very modestly call this paradox after myself, so I would call it the Rummel paradox, in the sense that you mentioned the, the original white paper in 2009 that foresaw these cryptocurrencies existing outside the realm of governments because there was the distrust of governments, um, the mismanagement in the sense of mismanagement of the economy of, um, of the economy by, by governments and this sort of alternative currency that, that existed. Now, what, what we're talking about today is enhanced regulation of cryptocurrencies by the very same governments that were meant to be independent, that were meant to play no role in, in cryptocurrencies. So my question has two parts. Let me start with the first one, which is that at the moment it's sort of a bit of a, a Wild West um, scenario in that there's no sheriff, there's no marshal in town, and it's basically, uh, I don't want to take this analogy too far, I mean, who draws fastest to the winds, but there's, there's no sheriff. And the old rule applies that, you know, buyer beware, you should do your homework when you invest, you should invest for the long term, and a higher reward only comes from taking higher risks. And I mean, investors seem to have forgotten these these basic rules. So I worry that if now all of a sudden we impose regulations, we th we foster um, or we encourage even more risk taking and um, maybe even calls for investor compensation if something goes wrong um, or people expecting compensation by the government for an investment gone wrong or for a hack of an exchange. And I'm not quite sure whether we're doing ourselves any favors. Well, let me ask the question, what's wrong with remaining in the current system of no regulation and people getting their fingers burnt? Well, and the free market system is as such that they are winners and they are, they are losers. But I think there's also the bit that 
if we are not going to do anything in terms of regulations, and we certainly we saw this from the warning issued by the the European regulators yesterday, is that at a minimum we then have to ensure that the public is getting the right information or information that they can use to better understand the risk. So I, I started as I I come at this bit from the perspective of financial literacy, public awareness, public education, and of course, trust and confidence in our economies, trust and confidence in our banking and financial system. So if we are not going to have uh, regulation, and, 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 and this, is, this is something that I, I just remember, because we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that leading up to 2008, a lot was left to self-regulation and no regulation. And experience has taught us that in some cases, self-regulation worked, no regulation worked, but it also caused us a lot of headache in 2008, and we are still paying the price today. So, for those who are in the cryptocurrency industry, if you're going to regulate yourself, then it's time for those who are not the nefarious actors to step forward with a reasonable mechanism as to how they're going to govern and regulate themselves. Um, I'm fearful that we're going to end this conversation and it's going to be, and this is something we have spoken about quite frequently, is that there's, there's no need for government. Um, uh, there's the, the economists and um, researchers, uh, they don't know what they're talking about because they have worked in central banking for 10, 15 years. Well, experience has taught me that if I had my trust in regulation in 2008, I had my trust in banking in 2008, I knew that consumers were too My question is, why should I be any more confident about the cryptocurrency space than I was in 2008? So from that perspective, regulation is, I, th I think regulation is, is critical. But let us start with the public awareness. Let us start with the education so that my adult children, if they are in fact investing in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, they have some kind of authoritative source to, under, to better understand the, the risk around I have not invested in Bitcoin market cards. Well, thank you for that uh, for that insight. And uh, certainly, it seems to me while the international community uh, is trying to figure out how to deal with Bitcoin, that that's a sort of a very sensible approach in terms of more transparency, more more information, um, which which is is always uh, obviously beneficial. Let me just point out that um, regulatory reforms are on the agenda of the upcoming G20 meeting in Buenos Aires at the end of March. So we're looking at that for further baby steps in terms of how we deal with uh, cryptocurrencies and international regulation, accounting rules, taxation, and all that. Again, trying to deal with the Rumble paradox with, of making cryptocurrencies more acceptable, more mainstream, which again has 
pros and cons, but I think for the time being, um, the the methods you outlined uh, are probably sort of the right the right steps to take. Um, to just keep in mind that even though it's got the name currency in it, um, it may it may not be a, a currency in in the sort of traditional sense of the word. I think that's all we've got time for this month, but let me thank Mark for sharing his thoughts on the potential future scope um, of regulation of cryptocurrencies and ICOs. Let me again remind you that you can email us at podcast at CSEN.org or you can tweet us at CSEN Center. We always like to hear from our, our listeners. And uh, I'd like to invite you to tune back in next month for our topical CSEN podcast. There will be something happening in the world of macro, uh, mac macroeconomics and or financial stability that is uh, worth us talking about. So with that, thank you for listening and um, we'll be back next month. Thank you very much. Thank you.